Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 11. Psalm chapter 11, a psalm that uh, I've been studying for several weeks here, and, and uh, it's, it's what I needed in my life at this time to encourage me in light of all the things that are happening around us in this world. It's good to know that uh, we're not the only ones who uh, have to face the uh, crumbling times around us, as David did. So this is a psalm of David. It's to the choir master, and I'm going to read it before we dig in. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for uh, leading David to write these words so long ago, words that will be uh, relevant to centuries later as Christians walk as, uh, as light in a dark world that's crumbling. Help us, Father, to uh, dig out from this the truths that are here and to understand that very first statement he makes, that the Lord is my refuge. So, Lord, help us to uh, listen with open hearts. Help us to release that which we should not retain and try to hang on to with our own power, but to trust in you. So bless this time, Lord. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> this is a sermon that I've entitled, Refuge, Our Refuge in Crumbling Times. A news reporter on the street was uh, walking around asking people what they thought were two of the, the greatest dangers facing America. And one man rather dismissively said, I don't know, and I really don't care. Kind of nailed it, didn't he? Ignorance and apathy. Two of the, the greatest dangers facing our country. People really don't know the difference between good and evil, and they have no desire to know the difference. And not much has changed, has it? When Isaiah accepted the call of God to bring his message to the Israelites, a, a very severe message, he, he gave them the right to pronounce a rather comment, a chilling curse on them. He said in Isaiah 6-9, God said, Tell them, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their eyes dull and close their eyes. Their ears dull and close their eyes. So the message is that he would give to God to repeat, or give to the, uh, Isaiah to repeat to the people over and over again were warnings about their idolatry and their propensity to disobey the laws of God and a severe warning about the coming judgment upon Israel. Their land was going to be destroyed, their beautiful temple torn down. So 
their ears were open, they heard the truth, but their minds decided not to receive the truth of God. They were indifferent. They were dangerously dismissive of the message of God. So they dismissed the messenger and, uh, r- rather than obey and repent as his message was instructing them to do. So in God's sovereign omniscience, he knew that this was Israel's final answer, <laughs> their final decision. And so we get to verse 10. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So their hardened hearts were further hardened by God. Does that sound like a familiar story? Way back in Egypt, Pharaoh? Ignorance and apathy had replaced any sense of discernment and the need for repentance of their sin. It's still true today, and not just in Israel. We all know that we live in a really messed up world. The moral and ethical values that once uh, formed the very infrastructure of nations are crumbling. World leaders are surrendering to the puppet masters, working with impunity toward establishing a single world governance. And great corporations whose products we buy and are dependent upon have gone woke, very dangerous to our culture. Hardworking people who are required to accept the training, to accept the alphabet soup of sexual deviancy, are fired because they refuse to do so. They're standing on God's truth. Politicians obviously disregard justice and silence those who value faith, family, and freedom as we do. We are being canceled. We are being condemned as the bad guys. Are you feeling it? If you're listening to the news, it's the truth. So what's happened? Well, the very functional footings of society have have shifted, and they have been shifting For decades, it's just that it's becoming so much more visible, especially in these last couple years. 3,000 years ago, David, King David, responded to a very probing question that's relevant for us today. It's right at the core of his psalm. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When you see the foundations of truth and righteousness and justice and the underpinnings of civility and respect and moral integrity being shaken, what's our next move? What's our next move? We've had a very good illustration of that in recent weeks. Imagine being in Turkey or northern Syria when these major quakes hit their land. 50,000 people perished. 200,000 structures gone. And what the original earthquake did not destroy, the severe afterquakes after that have, uh, have made unlivable. So there are many, many people, even today, that have no place to go and are in a hopeless situation. Now think back to the spiritual earthquake of Genesis chapter 3. When the first couple sinned against God the beautiful sovereign God who made them in his image and gave them instructions on how to live in the garden. They sinned against him. And so God had to uh, initiate the deadly consequences 
of their sin. And we are living today through in the increasingly severe aftershocks of that sin. And our house is about to collapse. <clears throat> are you tempted to run? Where? Are you tempted to move? To what safe place? You see, Satan is trying to deceive us into thinking that we have lost the battle. And King David faced that same temptation to believe that. He struggled, but he also triumphed, as we're going to see in this psalm. And his conclusion was that God remains the only firm foundation during crumbling times. And so he begins this psalm by saying, In the Lord I take refuge. David always seemed to be on the edge in some crucible of crisis uh, as he was being chased around the country by King Saul. Saul was uh, in constant pursuit. His, David's little army uh, was not composed of well-trained officers and, and military men. These men were the anti-establishment depressed men, rebels running from home, running from responsibilities, running from the high taxes that King Saul had imposed upon them, as Samuel warned them would happen if they chose him. So who can he trust? Who can he trust? He needed a refuge for his soul that was outside himself and outside the physical realm of men that had gathered around him, and he knew that was God. God had been his help in, in ages past, well, in earlier years of his life, as he defeated animals, as he uh, watched over his father's sheep. He knew the Lord was his only place of safety. And that is such an important starting place for all of us who face the giants of our life. Faith in God and his unfailing word is our firm foundation that will never shake, never shift underneath us and give us cause for concern. So he goes on and he asks, how then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? Picture a little nest up in the mountain that he could flee to. The identity of the you here is kind of ambiguous. We're not sure who this you is. Is it a literal voice that he can actually hear? Maybe an infiltrator among the 600 men that came to him who's trying to discourage him from continuing to lead this rabble-rousing group of men against Saul? Or is it an internal witness to in his own soul saying, David, you better get out of Dodge. Your life is in danger. You better look out for number one. No one else is. So we're not sure where this voice is coming from, but it's very real to David. And this psalm doesn't identify a specific crisis like so many other, of the other psalms do in their superscription, giving us the historical context of where and when he's writing this, but it could apply to many different circumstances that David finds himself in, very dangerous circumstances. And he needed to trust in someone outside himself. Spies were everywhere in the land, and they could have infiltrated, and uh, it was hard to hide such a large army in the Judean wilderness. So he was truly in danger. So here's this voice 
saying, For look, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to, to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. So the enemy is hiding in the shadows with weapons ready, locked and loaded, and he is their target. He's the righteous guy running from a very unrighteous man. <clears throat> so the two value systems that work here, opposing each other. There's the righteous, the upright in heart, and we would put David in that category. He wants to honor God versus the unrighteous who seek self-glory, seek power for themselves. And it's a, it's a battle between heaven and hell. It's a spiritual battle that uh, he is in. And he understands that. <clears throat> but he can't fight with them. He can't fight them really with, with muscle and steel. There is something different about this battle, and it's the same battle that you and I are in today. And the Apostle Paul understood it very well. And he defined this battle. He said to the Corinthian church, though we walk in the flesh, yes, we are still in these earthly, fleshly, sinful bodies, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That means you cannot depend upon your own power, your own wisdom, to defeat the enemy who cannot be seen, who is much stronger than you. Jesus taught his disciples and his followers to, to walk in the ways of righteousness as I have shown you how to do that. The problem was they crucified Jesus. And the very people that demanded his crucifixion are the very ones who are still around even today. The same mentality. A follower of Jesus, got to get rid of them. The world systems are in a constant battle to undermine the Judeo-Christian principles that our country has been founded upon and upon which you and I value. And there are so many systems working against us. But remember this, my friends. Satan was not the winner at Golgotha. He was not the victor. It was our precious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who willingly went to the cross to pay for our sins. He was the victor. And we can live in that victory today as we're going to find out here in a few minutes. So he knew, David knew, that he was to be Saul's successor as the next king of Israel. So could he trust that God? Would God allow David to be killed after God led Samuel to anoint him as the next king of Israel? Well, absolutely not. But here is an interesting detail that we need to remember. Even faith like David's cannot see beyond the present treacherous circumstances he's living in. He knew he was going to be the next king. He knew God would not allow him to be killed before then. But even he did not know what lay around the next hill or the next valley. He had to trust God. So he faces a piercing question, which we asked earlier. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's almost like a mockery. You can't do a thing because we're more powerful than you. <clears throat> well, let's unwrap this a little bit. 
The Hebrew word for foundations is shathah, and as far as I could see, it's the only place in the whole Old Testament that this word is used. There are at least eight other Hebrew words that speak of the solid foundation or the pillars that hold up a structure, but this is not that. So if it's not that, then what is it? It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor meaning that which sustains civil and social order. Let me read to you what I found in Barnes' notes, a little bit of an extended definition here. And remember that Barnes wrote this some years ago. It refers to those things on which society rests or by which social order is sustained, the great principles of truth and righteousness that uphold society. The question refers to the destruction of those things in a community when truth is no longer respected, when justice is no longer practiced, when fraud and violence have taken the place of honesty and honor, when error prevails, when a character standing for integrity and virtue no longer affords any security, and the righteous, therefore, can find no security. So David's reliance is in the prevalence of just principles, in the observance of law, in the diffusion of truth, in plans and deeds which are honorable and pure. And you cannot successfully begin, build, and sustain a society without those principles at work. When you don't have them, you have tyranny. You have oppression. So what can the righteous do? When secret machinations and plans of treachery and deceit prevail... Well, the question is challenging and is extremely relevant today in light of all that's happening around the world. And it's a very good complimentary psalm to the present series that Pastor Jeremy is preaching from 1 Peter, which series is entitled, How to Triumph in Troubled Times. And these are troubling times, especially for our brothers and sisters around the world in areas where Christianity has been condemned. The Bible is not to be distributed. Christians are being persecuted, condemned, and die. The ACLJ has just uh, told us that in Algeria, no, excuse me, Nigeria alone, in the last 10 months, 4,000 Christians have been slaughtered. And that's just in one country. We have a classmate from Multnomah that is working in, uh, in that country over there trying to train pastors to teach the truth and teach, and teach their congregations how to face this. It needs a lot of prayer. Think of how our lives changed on September 11th, forever changed. Or when COVID hit just three and a half years ago and unelected professionals took charge of your life, determining your social needs, your medical needs, and how about that, even your religious needs? When and how you could worship. New laws, new policies, new protocols were established. Powers that they were very reluctant to release. So, what can the righteous do? Well, I've suggested at least four things here. What's the first recourse that we have as Christians when we face Goliaths? Prayer. Talking to God. Establishing 
our confidence in a sovereign God who loved us and gave himself up for us. It's so important. And just this past week, as Rachel and I were listening to Amir Tsarfadi, who is uh, one of our favorite uh, Bible teachers, who was a major in the Israeli Defense Force, was telling us, right now, Israel is in its greatest danger since 1973 when they almost lost their country to the Arab invasion. Greatest danger. He said, with China and Russia, Saudi Arabia teaming up with Iran, it's in a very dangerous situation. He's also encouraged us to say, God has done miraculous things in these past weeks that he can't even tell us about. But he says, prayer is the only thing that will save us at this point. And I believe it. The Israeli Defense Force will not save them. God will. <clears throat> Secondly, we can encourage each other through fellowship like we're doing here this morning. We need each other in the body of Christ. We've been learning that in our, in our John studies on Wednesday night, that we belong to each other because we belong to God and we need each other, in, especially in these trying times. Let Scripture rule your heart. Scripture is our solid foundation that will never shift. God's Word is solid, and we need its input in our life, especially in times like this when we need specific instruction. And we go to the Psalms and we find, oh man, someone else went through this too. It's so good for me. Let Scripture rule your heart, and then let praise fill your mind and lips. I love coming here to Good Shepherd Bible Church and praise God with you. I love what Jesse leads us and the worship teams that he puts together, how they lead us to the throne of God. You don't realize how privileged you and I are to be able to sit here today in freedom that we still have and worship God and open his word. Praise fill your minds and lips, um, whether it's here or in the privacy of your home and car. And then the last thing I put up there was one that you probably obviously were thinking of. Well, yeah, we can vote, right? We're part of the, we're, we are part as members of a representative republic, and we need to vote for those people who uphold truth and justice and life. A sad article that I read that was dated from October 2020 noted that in recent elections, 40 million eligible Christians of all denominations did not vote. Could they have made a difference? So back to our question. What can the righteous do? The world would say, nothing. You're losers. Lay down your weapons and surrender. The battle's over. You've lost. Israel, under Saul's reign, must have felt that way. Because Saul started off well, but then he turned his back on God. He thought he was ruler. So God reciprocated and turned his back on him and gave him an evil spirit, which is very troubling. He was very oppressed. He was dangerous. He was emotionally irrational. And he was deadly, as, as David found out as he was playing his harp for him. He was a terrible leader. He was dividing the whole country between pro-Saul and pro-David. And if you were over here in this camp, your life was in danger. So the Israelis must have been very conflicted about this, wondering why would our king 
try to destroy a young man who was a civic and military leader who actually led us in victory over our enemy, the Philistines. See, David didn't stand at the edge of the battlefield when he, when he uh, saw Goliath out there. Not like his brothers who were standing there with trembling knees saying, look at how big he is. What can the righteous do? We can't go out there and conquer him. But what did David do? He, he knew where his strength came from. That's what he says right here in this psalm. He ran towards the enemy and he declared Goliath as a dead man because he was defying the armies of the living God. How did that work out? <laughs> he was the victor that day because his faith was in God, not in himself. And he knew that God even had to direct that rock right to his forehead at the right spot. What a man of faith. And the God who is greater than Goliath is also the same God that can help him to determine what to do and the kind of attitude to have in the present circumstance that he was in being chased all around the country by the Israeli defense force. So the question does not demand a fatalistic answer. Not at all. There's a great deal the righteous can do, as I just suggested, and attack does not presuppose defeat. Remember that. Yes, the foundations are shaking. They're being shaken. Mocking crowds are jeering at the very truths that you and I hold precious and have all our lives, a truth that we believe. Our foundation is not like theirs. Our foundation is eternal, isn't it? <clears throat> it transcends all powers. The WHO, the WEF, the CDC, the DOJ, the IRS, none of those things can defeat our G-O-D, right? They don't understand that. They cannot defeat God. And no one can lay any other foundation that God has already laid in the person of Jesus Christ upon which we by faith place our faith and can gain life and eternal perspective. <clears throat> Nations come and go as God directs because he is still God. And he was David's recourse as he is ours as well. Think of the Apostle Paul and all the things that he was confronted in life. And we have lists of all the things that he went through for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is his assessment. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We have always carried around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. This sounds a lot like Romans 6, dying to self and becoming alive under Jesus Christ. Appreciate Paul's stamina. It's because of his missionary work that we have the gospel here in the remotest part of our country, right here. So what can the righteous do? We can live triumphantly in the righteousness of God himself. We can triumph because he has supreme dominion over all mankind. See what it says here? 
And this is the core, my friends. This is the turning point. The Lord is in his holy temple. And the Lord's throne is in heaven. Do you realize the length and breadth and depth of that statement alone? And the difference it would make in our lives if we truly believed it and truly lived it. So in contrast to all the earthly chaos that uh, David sees around him here, he knows that God is in control. God is not threatened by what's happening around us in America today, is he? By who gets into office? Is he threatened by that? Is he up there biting his fingernails saying, oh, I didn't mean for the election to go that way. Is he waiting for us as the church to make everybody righteous, clean up our act down here so that he can come down and reign? It's sad that some Christians actually believe that's the task of the local church. That's, that is not the task of the local church. <clears throat> no one rules him. No one acts outside his permissive or dismissive will. And we know this truth too. Every knee will someday bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will give account to him someday, but just not today. Knowing our God sovereignly reigns now really gives me an eternal kingdom perspective and such security in this troubled life. <clears throat> He's the God of all nations. He's not just the God of Israel. And you and I as Gentiles need to really rejoice in that fact that he has brought us in. He has grafted us in to the main trunk here to be a part of his family. And someday, people from every tribe and nation and tongue will be gathered at the throne of God singing praises together. And I don't know what languages that is going to be, but it's going to be beautiful. Can you imagine every nation singing in their own language? And it's all going to sound like the most beautiful sound you could ever hear. Because we're worshiping the one true living God. We won't be American Christians. We won't be Israeli Christians. We won't be Christ, uh, Chinese Christians. We will all simply be the redeemed from every nation. And today, yes, we are living as aliens in this world, awaiting for our heavenly home to be revealed. And that, my friends, could happen today. If you hear the sound of the trumpet, you're instantly going to be changed. You're not going to be here in this crumbling world anymore. You're going to be instantly in the presence of God and living there with the righteous forever and ever. Meantime, wars and rumors of wars will continue until Jesus re returns. And he is the only hope for this dark world the only hope. And when he returns, he's going to uh, take care of things and he's going to establish himself on his throne in Jerusalem. And the righteous, we don't look to the military. We don't look to politicians to, uh, to save us. They're not our Messiah. We hope in the king who sits on the great throne in heaven now, today. <clears throat> and not only does he reign supreme, but he watchfully tests his children, his people. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. 
The Lord tests the righteous. So when the fallen world is screaming at us, you have no hope, the foundations are destroyed, you have nowhere to stand, take heart, my friends, because his eyes and his eyelids are watching. They're testing us. It's an interesting situation here. How can God's eyelids test us? Well, the only thing I can understand about that is that he's, it's almost like he's squinting to look intently, to be aware of what you and I need, what we're going through, how we're responding to tests and so forth. He's not asleep. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber or sleep. He's watching. And what we do in those hours of testing really proves the spiritual fiber, fiber of our being. David knows that without tests, our faith grows soft and we forget God. And we've been living pretty soft lives here by comparison to our brothers and sisters around the world, haven't we? The third thing here is that the righteous can also trust Yahweh because the wicked will be judged. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. So in contrast to the refining fire that God puts us through on almost a daily basis, especially if you're listening to the news every day, can be very discouraging. In contrast to that is the judgmental fire that God can rain down on this earth on the unrighteous. You, ha you have to imagine that David has Sodom and Gomorrah in mind here. We watched a special on that this week. And uh, that was the once fertile plain down there south of the Dead Sea that Lot chose when Abraham gave him the choice, go this way or this way. And Lot says, oh, this place looks really good. And he went down and dwelt among Sodom, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And today, that place is so ruined, there is no, no one that can possibly live there, and there has been no civilization there since the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You look at those pictures, and it's just awful dirt. It's, it's ugly. You can even see a burn line in the layers where God burned down those cities. You can find the results of bones of humans that were burned or bent with heat. And you can even still find sulfur, globs of sulfur that you can still light on fire. That's total destruction, my friends. And anyone who defies God and tries to destroy the people of God are going to face that kind of fiery judgment someday. It's not that they're beyond the grace of God. Think of the Apostle Paul and what he did to the church before he became a Christian, the best missionary that the world has ever seen. So let's have a missional mindset when it comes to the people who are persecuting us. Moses reminded us, reminded us that God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, he says the Lord. <clears throat> and in due time, the wicked are repaid. Just not today. And then, verse 7, the final verse here, he rewards the righteous who will someday see him. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. So David knows that righteousness is both a present progressive pursuit and a future fulfillment of the redeemed. When we see Jesus, we're going to be made completely, fully righteous without sin not being tempted by sin anymore, not in the presence of sin. We've 
we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we've been justified, we've been declared right with God. That's past tense of salvation. Today we are in the process of maturing. We're in the process of becoming more Christ-like in our actions and attitudes and more aware of the mission that God still has for us to do on this earth. That's present tense salvation. And the future, we will be like him someday, forever. And that's the glorification that we are awaiting when he snatches us off of this earth. <clears throat> Far beyond the crumbling foundations that are so discouraging and distressing to so many of us. Our faith will be tested as evil thrives and calamity tests us. But the children of God can demonstrate that faith that divine courage that Jesus gives us to serve him even in the crucibles of life, as David found out. And there are many, many illustrations, thousands of them, that you could draw upon uh, of people going through this. But I want to end with an illustration of, from 1996. An Ethiopian Airlines flight was hijacked by some terrorists and rerouted the plane uh, and it kept flying until it just ran out of gas. Andy Meekins and his wife were on that flight, <clears throat> seated together, and as they neared the islands in the Indian Ocean, the Comoros Islands, the pilot came on and said, we're not going to make it to land, we're going to have to crash land in the ocean. And as soon as Andy heard that, he unbuckled his seatbelt, he stood up and he said, many of us may die in this crash today. So there's something you really need to know. And he proceeded to explain the gospel message in all its urgency and clarity to people that were looking desperately for some word of hope. And as he explained the gospel, one of the flight attendants heard the message, was convicted, bowed her head, prayed that prayer, and became a Christian on the spot. And she looked up and she saw many other people praying, praying, for Jesus to become their Savior. And she, along with another survivor, told us what happened that day, or we wouldn't have any account of it. Out of the 175 people that were on that flight, 125 died, including Andy Meekins, who was still on his feet explaining the gospel as the plane hit the water. And just like an airplane going down today, out of fuel, our country, our world, our time is running out. And every day the foundations of the earth are being shaken more and more. That's why we barely listen to the news except to really catch what's urgent and from powerful resources that we can trust. And the only message that will make a difference in the heart's of people who don't have any hope and are looking around and seeing what's going to happen if this happens or this happens, what's going to happen to me and my family, the only message that will help them is not to elect a new president. How did the last election work? It's not, it's not going to help. The only message is the message of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. Andy Meekins used his last breath to tell that story. And when you're tempted to panic, tempted to run, tempted to dismiss all this, just remember the faith of David and how he faced his Goliath 
and the courage of an Andy who was willing to give his life to, bre- to present the gospel. So let's trust our God for that one pure and holy fa- passion that he has called us to in this day and in this hour, right where we're at. God remains our only firm foundation in troubled times. That's where I take my stand along with you. So how do we respond to this? Let's expect the foundations of our society to get worse. I would love to blow sunshine at you today and just say, hey, just wait for the next election. It's going to make all the difference in the world. No, my friends, it's not. The world is on a collision course with the prophecies of the book of Revelation. What God says is going to happen, and it's all there, is going to happen. And the aftershocks of Eden are the birth pangs of his coming judgment on the earth. God will soon unleash his wrath on a condemned evil world, but not today. Secondly, God has never stopped reigning. You say, well, it doesn't look like he's reigning now, does it? Oh, yeah, he's reigning. From where? From his throne in heaven. He's overseeing everything that's happening on this earth. Someday, his throne is going to be in Jerusalem, and we're going to worship him and serve him from his throne in Jerusalem. Oh, I look forward to that. Third, God tests our faith in troubling times, and he's watching over us. He's, he's watching intently. He's refining us through the things that we're going through day by day on this earth. And he wants us to submit to that refinement and to trust him because he, he loves to reward faithfulness. And fourth and finally, God's delay in bringing judgment is our opportunity to spread the gospel to those who still need to hear it, to your friends, to your family, to your coworkers, to your neighbors. That's what he's called us to do. Uh, 2 Peter 3.9 says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Opportunity to share. So don't abandon your calling in the face of the crumbling. Let's pray. Our Lord, the times are in your hands, and, and so are we. You warned that perilous times would come in the last days, but you also told us that the last days would prepare for the return of Christ. And we're apt to be troubled by politics, upset by elections, and just wary of rulers. But you, O Lord, direct the affairs of history. And if David could praise you and trust you in his world crumbling around him, we can praise and trust you in our modern world of of conflict. So thank you. Thank you for being on your throne. Thank you that someday that throne will be on earth and we will see you and serve you in our new bodies. We know that the rulers of this world, with their power and pride, are no match for your sovereign rule. So lead us on, beyond the fear of their threats, and to victory that we have in Jesus Christ. It's his name we pray. Amen.